Attention listeners, ahead are spoilers. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Movie Trap. I am your host, Russell Carlson, and with me, our very own Mr. White, Chris Boroff. Why do I gotta be Mr. Pink? <laughs> and You're with lying. me as well, <laughs> nice guy, Zach Powers. I, uh, I got so mad yelling at you mugs, I forgot my line on camera. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lawrence Tierney. Uh, he had such a face and yet such a work ethic. Um, anyway, you find yourself at the beginning of a brand new theme of the movie trap. Now, what is a theme of the movie trap? Well, one of us picked a theme and then the three of us picks a movie based on that theme. Each one of us gets 10 points to vote on. At the end of the three movies, we vote on which one won or whatever, because last round was a bit tough to say who won. Um, but we also have bonus points to give out throughout the episode. Each of us has three bonus points to give out on the episode. So we are at the beginning. We of took a, a longer than theme. normal time between uh, episodes here. And I think. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a little bit rusty. <laughs> ha, 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 get it, get it, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, uh, so we are at the beginning of a brand new theme chosen by Zach Powers because previously on the movie trap, Zach Powers won Boris' theme of failed franchises with Dick Tracy. And following that line of cops and robbers and what have you, he has chosen a movie based off of his theme, which is your favorite movie for when you, meaning us, in high school. He has chosen 1992's Reservoir Dogs, directed yeah. by Quentin Tarantino. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a movie that uh, obviously, I think we've all seen a fair amount of times um, more, in our lifetimes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Zach, for in case there's a listener out there who has not seen Reservoir Dogs, why don't you go ahead and plot us through the multifaceted universe of Reservoir Dogs? Yeah, and uh, just with a quick clarification, not necessarily my favorite movie from high school. It's just a movie that had a lot of impact on me for at least a couple of years, a year or two in high school. So, and it felt like a very movie of its time. It, it has not stayed with me to the degree that some movies have into my adulthood. This is the first time I've seen it in many years, but we can go into that after the summary. So, <laughs> Reservoir Dogs is a 1992 film. It is the directorial debut of one Quentin Tarantino. Uh, it stars Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Steve Buscemi, Michael Madsen, Lawrence Tierney, and Chris Penn, and virtually no one else. Um, uh, Reservoir Dogs is the story of a gang of, uh, of six thieves and their two bosses who plan a jewel heist, a midday jewel heist uh, of a bunch of diamonds that just came into town. Um, that goes awry, uh, though the heist is never shown on screen. We do see the immediate aftermath where they meet up at a warehouse uh, in an attempt to figure out what went wrong and whether they got the loot. Uh, Mr. Orange, played by Tim Roth, uh, has been shot before, uh, before the meat of the movie begins and is slowly dying from his, uh, his stomach wound um, and has developed a bond with Mr. White, Harvey Keitel, who safely got him to the warehouse and out of danger's way. They're met there by Mr. Pink, Steve Buscemi, 
who says that there is definitely a cop in their midst because after the alarm went off, the police showed up too quickly. Or perhaps more specifically, after the alarm went off and then Mr. Blonde immediately began killing civilians, the police were there within seconds. Um, eventually, uh, Mr. Blonde himself shows up and... Uh, this is the first contact they've had with any of the bosses. Mr. Blonde claims that he has talked to nice guy Eddie, um, one of the the son of of um, of Joe Cabot, sort of this L.A. drug kingpin, and uh, that they are on their way, and that they will figure out the deal once everyone's there. Mr. Pink has said that he has hidden the diamonds somewhere, and that he has the loot. Um, and over the course of these revelations uh, breaking through, we're often treated to a series of cutbacks, uh, flashbacks to them planning the heist, um, them receiving their nicknames, uh, things of that nature. Um, the biggest one is, is just yet to come. Yeah, um, it's, it's one of those crypto chronological order films where it's you have to watch the whole film and then put it back together at the end. Yeah, so, yeah, and it's sort of like a preamble for Pulp Fiction, sort of, you could say, in that way. It's already doing... Sort something. of his bag. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, Mr. Blonde uh, not only has contacted Nice Guy Eddie, he has, in order to escape the situation, taken a police officer hostage. Um, so they've dragged this police officer into the room. Uh, nice Guy Eddie arrives, and Pink and White head out to ditch the hot cars leaving Mr. Blonde alone with the seemingly unconscious Mr. Orange and the police officer who he proceeds to torture just for fun, not for information. Um, just before he is going to set this police officer on fire, uh, Orange wakes up and shoots Mr. Blonde to death and reveals to the officer that he is, in fact, the rat. Um, at this point, we get uh, the meatiest flashback of the movie, uh, basically the story of how Mr. Orange infiltrated this group of thieves, uh, him, you know, getting his in, reciting this story that he had to learn, uh, them planning the robbery, getting their names, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and ultimately, uh, coming back to present day, uh, at which point nice guy and pink and white return Nice guy who's good friends with Mr. Blonde, or was prior to his death, um, is angered by the situation um, and immediately suspects Orange for having killed Mr. Blonde in order to save a cop whose life they don't value in the slightest. He murders the cop straight away. Um, and Orange tries to spin it that Mr. Blonde was the mole, though uh, certain people aren't having it, considering he's, uh, you know, already killed a bunch of people and is shown his loyalty repeatedly. Um, but at that point, uh, roughly, uh, Joe, uh, the big man himself, arrives. Um, the whole thing descends into uh, accusations with Joe and Eddie both believing that Mr. Orange is the cop, Joe saying he's the only guy he wasn't 100% certain about, and Mr. White, who at this point has developed a relationship with, uh, with Mr. Orange, pointing his gun at Joe in order to save him. It's basically a four-way standoff, uh, at which point everybody, excluding Mr. Pink, who kind of stayed out of the whole ordeal, is shot. Um, Joe and Eddie are killed instantly. Orange and White are still alive. Pink grabs the diamonds and runs out, um, seemingly being caught by the cops on the outside, though there's some 
area for debate on that. Uh, and uh, in their final moments, both wounded on the floor with the cops fast approaching, um, Orange reveals to White that he was indeed the cop. And uh, White, uh, in his grief, just as the cops enter the building, shoots Orange in the head before being blown away by the cops himself. And that is Reservoir Dogs. With the lime in the coconut. <laughs> yes, that was um, the, the fun and uh, uh, upbeat comedy of Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's definitely what made Tarantino and in a lesser extent Miramax in some respect uh, in the early 90s. Um, sort of launching point career points for Buscemi, yeah. Tim Roth, Michael Madsen. And obviously um, Tarantino himself. And Tarantino I mean, Buscemi, and Lawrence Bender. Buscemi, to be fair, had worked with the Coens at least sure. twice prior to this. Uh, Miller's Crossing yeah. and Barton Fink are both older than this movie. For sure. This one, and, this and Tarantino himself kind of cribbed. He, he claimed the violence from this in the director's commentary many years ago, claimed that he was kind of cribbing from the Coen brothers as far as their use of violence, where it could be almost cartoony, um, but still pretty in your face and blunt about it. Um, yeah. yeah, I think this is bloodier my, uh... than any other any coen brothers movie i've seen like overall but uh... yeah there there are parts in this that get pretty close to horror films like you can see and immediately i was thinking of hostile like when the cop was tied to the chair i immediately was like oh, okay hostile definitely borrowed from this uh, um, you know you think eli roth's a big tarantino yeah, fan, yeah, do yeah. You? Um, um but briefly i think because of the nature of this topic before we go too deep into the movie mm -hmm. itself uh, i do think it might be worth talking about at least my and possibly all of our relationship to this movie because the topic Fair is enough. about uh, movies we had a relationship to much earlier in life mm -hmm. not that much earlier we're not we're not that old <laughs> but uh hey, earlier that's enough. right you heard him Bora. you heard him <laughs> uh but yeah so uh this was a movie that i probably got into this was kind of my first like you know when you're in high school and you are um, uh, a white straight boy, the worst thing you can be in any given point in your life, a straight white boy in high school, you get into your first violent crime film, right? At some point you find that first one. Uh, this, this was it for me. Uh, probably when I was a sophomore in high school, I was, I didn't have many friends in freshman year because, uh, in middle school, all my old friends started smoking weed and I wasn't ready for that. And then I got into theater in like sophomore year of high school made some new friends, and this movie was a point of bonding for us. We did speech and debate, which gave us an excuse to wear matching suits on the weekend, because we had to wear suits um, to speech and debate tournaments, and we just sort of, I don't know, fell into Reservoir Dogs, even in a way, even more than Pulp Fiction, which we obviously saw sometime around that time. And it uh, became a big thing for maybe a year or so. And it was my introduction to that phase that every kid has, but every kid should grow out of by the time they're at least a sophomore in college of like hard boiled crime being the only kind of movie genre there is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, That's true with anything too. Cause even like when I was in like middle school, I was really into horror movies and I wouldn't watch anything that wasn't a horror movie. Yeah. Big you gotta, you know, come on. I think that's true for me too. Like I was big into sci-fi and horror at the yeah. same time. Horror was also very big yeah. for me. I could have picked easily a number of, of, of horror movies uh, well, it, for this category it, as well. For me, um, when I saw this one, I remember it back in high school and I remember that the, it actually might've been before high school. Yeah. I would have been 12 when this came out. No, I would have been mm. older. 92? Uh, 
92. I would have been older. Uh, I think like I'd have to do the math. But um, the thing is, is when it came out, I remember that it was like a reintroduction of a lot of these like 70s style films, but in a modern setting, in a modern sense. So that was kind of the aesthetic and the drawing point. And that's true of a lot of Quentin Tarantino's stuff. Like a lot of it borrows from previous eras. It is worth noting, you know, Quentin Tarantino, he's been around at this point for, I guess this movie will turn 30 next year. So he's he's been around. He's not a new new kid on the block anymore. In fact, he's talking about retiring. But, um, you know. He'll never do it. You know. I doubt it. Uh, but I, doubt uh, it. I think it's worth noting that there is, even though he's, like, easy to mock, I think there's still a lot in his movies that's really interesting, even if there's some stuff that's cringy. And as easy as he is to mock as a figure uh, a lot of the time, there is a reason he became such a huge force and why he didn't fade away like a Kevin Smith did. Uh, he does do interesting and unique things and i think this movie has some of that unique flair yeah. uh, to and it for especially for such yeah. a low budget film i mean this movie oh, was almost right. made just by tarantino and his friends until Kaitel got the script somehow and Pretty managed much. to get an extra 1.5 mil i think that was the casting yeah. director yeah <laughs> Passed it on uh, to and then I, yeah and i th- think that um that that's true too i mean because like the there is you know, Tarantino has a lot of cultural resonance, you know, like there's a difference between like something that's popular at a time and cultural resonance. Yeah. And Tarantino for one reason or another had that in his films. And, and to Zach's other point about like that, he's still made, you know, considering his contemporaries, Rodriguez, you know, they never really got to the level of Tarantino did. Um, the, um, He's evolved. He's changed. He, has, he hasn't yeah. stuck to a type, even though in the early part of the '90s, you really kind of thought he has a type, right? You know, mm-hmm. like in you know, because he had this Pulp Fiction and like Jackie Brown, and it was all kind of similar universes almost. You know, it, it wasn't until probably he started doing Kill Bill, maybe? more genre. Yeah, yeah, I would say probably Kill Bill. Um, you know, I, I, that's probably fair. Uh, and then and then he started doing more genre films rather than just sticking to his sort of bread and butter. Yeah. Um, so that, that I give him credit to that too, uh, but there is something about that that '90s era, and I'm talking specifically this film in Pulp Fiction, that for some reason permeated almost every facet well, of culture. Well, one of the, and stuck. Well, one of the things I noticed with that is that this was also a lot of people's introduction to indie films, um, independently produced sure. films, and this one I think won the Spirit Award and a whole bunch of stuff when it came out, and it became a whole marketing arm for Weinstein. Um, and one of the reasons that Quentin Tarantino has such like an attention to him on these is that um, when Weinstein went into doing the marketing on these, he always would talk about Quentin Tarantino because they needed a guy they could put out there as like the auteur, the hot new thing. So on Pulp Fiction, for example, there was a co-writer for Pulp Fiction. The co-writer never gets attention, but it's a guy that uh, went on to write Killing Zoe, which I think is essentially, I would say like this film but showed the heist um and uh he also went on to do other films that are less less known but we have watched on this show like silent hill um the writer sure, for I silent believe... hill uh, yeah yeah, yeah. He so also went on to but yeah do a hit and run i think i think he killed somebody with his car was that Holy was shit. that him or was that eric red uh, I could have sworn it was him, but uh, I'll double okay. check while we're recording. I'll double check too, because it was also the uh, the guy who did the uh, 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 an adaptation. 
Okay, I got it. Here it is. You got it? It is indeed the co Roger, Roger Avery, co-writer yeah. of uh, Pulp Fiction. Uh, January 13th, 2008. Arrested under suspicion of manslaughter and DUI. Uh, oh, God. The passenger was killed. Yeah, so he... Whoops. Yeah, so definitely... Okay, well, that's that's a grim thing to find out. Um, yeah. Um. So, yeah, I think... Oh man, that's horrible. Uh, so the uh, basically this movie, I think that's kind of why it has the cultural staying powers because it was sort of an introduction to indie films and a lot of things. But with that said, this film was incredible for the fact that it is a bottle episode. Essentially, it is sure. in one location. It could be a stage play. Yeah, it, you know, it, it could be a stage. Yeah, play. it looks like a one-room thing, and it's funny because later in his career, he essentially kind of remakes this film in the old west mm. for Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah. No, it was Hateful Eight. Hateful Eight, sorry. Yeah. Once Upon a Time in the West yeah. is a Sergio Leone film, and a very yeah. good one at that. Excellent but um, I will uh, say, uh, I, I, this is an interesting timing for this, because I, I was doing research for this and saw an article came out in the past few days that uh, alighted two things. One, Tarantino is still claiming that he'll retire after his next movie, and said he did consider doing a remake of Reservoir Dogs with an entirely black cast. No. He's not going to do it but he did consider it apparently. Um, but also said uh, that he is interested in adapting it into a stage play, like writing a product, a version of it for the stage. And to be fair, it would work. I'm surprised no one has. Me too. Um, Me too. You've seen it with the breakfast club. You've seen it with a it bunch of other, very these kind of that within this yeah. 10 year period. Yeah. Um, um, and, I, and, and, and I mean, he even cites one of his inspirations, not showing the highest, Budgetary concerns, yes, but also in Glengarry Glen Ross, they don't show like the initial, you know, inciting incident, and he claims uh, that is. You think, you think Tarantino's a big David Mamet fan, do you? Do you, <laughs> you think he's a big Mamet fan? I, I would say but, that that's yeah. probably uh, a good thing to lean into. the The writing for Tarantino and the dialogue seems like it's often almost as important, if not more important, than some of the camera work that goes into these films. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, I don't want to drop on that though, because I do want to talk about his camera work mm -hmm. and and and, sure. and the fact that he kind of well steals. I mean, he openly admits he steals from other movies. He, he it, that's yeah. sort of the point. I, I'm not. That's not a knock. That's I, I think it's he does it pretty. He, he's obsessed with doing homages. That happens a lot yeah. in his films. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think that I'm I'm okay with it. I actually don't have a huge problem with it. But I, I, I to your point about like the dialogue and and the way they talk, I think part of the reason this film. Uh, is so fascinating is because it kind of shows the banality of criminals, you know, that they're just like mm -hmm. telling bullshit stories, going through drive-throughs, like they're, that's, that's, it's the banality of crime. And that's what makes the, that, you know, like Wes Craven kind of claimed that this film kind of glorifies violence. I'm not necessarily sure if I agree um, because it's yeah. not like any of these guys are good people. It's not like, yeah. you know, outside of Mr. Orange, you're not really, there's not really a good guy among them. And bunch, even Mr. You know, Orange, like, you know, Shoots a woman to death, yeah. kind of accidentally, yeah. you know, yeah. on impulse. Yeah. He still does. Yeah. It. Well, see, when a cop does it, it's accidental. <laughs> well, the thing is, is it seems like they're using that as a counterpoint to the violence. Like, a lot of times in this, like speci specifically, there's a scene with Mr. White and Mr. Orange where Harvey, Harvey Keitel is in there. I think Mr. Orange has just told some story in the car, and then Mr. White very casually tells him that, like, if you're dealing with a guy at the back who's arguing and doesn't give you the money, just cut his pinky off and just tell him you're going to cut his thumb off next. And he says it in a very, like, matter-of-fact way, like he's talking about hedge clipping. And then he's like, all right, you want to go get a taco? And then they just go off and do that. And it's it's yeah. kind of a perfect way to introduce that they don't but, see other people as people and that it's the violence yeah, and, and the camaraderie are right there locked together in a very strange way. 
and there's a you there's and it also very importantly like has this sort of sliding scale in terms of um in terms of their use of violence like uh i saw somebody say they described mr white uh, slash pink and mr blonde as an example of sociopathy versus psychopathy almost and that uh pink and white will use violence to get what they want but they're not doing it for the sake of the violence themselves itself and are even offended in many ways by blondes like use of extreme violence just for the sake of violence so it is this like uh, difference of kind in a way where they are absolutely monstrous thieves and criminals but they still see themselves as an order of magnitude above blonde who is a full-blown like violent sadist well uh, sure, I, and that's why yeah. I think that that when that when that part is at its peak, it's during the the storytelling sequence. Because you know when when Orange is rehearsing for his story, it's I think it's the best part of the movie. Um, I think it's the most where it kind of cuts done. back and forth, and then it cuts to you know the story about the guy getting his dick glued to his stomach, and then it makes a hard cut to uh, Lawrence Tierney. You gotta hand it to the guy. That guy has a voice and a face that is unlike any other. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he is one of a kind. Um, you know, so you like to sit around telling jokes. You know, and it kind of the movie, the way the cameras move and the way the kind of dialogue continues from there is like a gear shift. That they're all just nasty, and then it really gets down to like, no, these are actually terrible criminals sure. who like are totally opportunistic and awful people yeah um, it's the classic and, uh, and, show show the tiger in repose thing like it's not interesting to yeah. show the tiger eating something show it relaxing and chilling out before it gets up and gets angry yeah a lion in winter yeah. for sure um and that's why i think that you know it, it, and part of that is is tarantino's use of ambiguity um and and his play with the the timeline i i think that that allows the audience to sort of fill the void uh, in themselves, they they can kind of get it, and it, it and that that allows the audience to sort of pour themselves into these people, and that's the trap that Tarantino sets for it. You know that like, oh, I, I can relate to not tipping. Tipping's a pain in the ass. Well, you just agree with this fucking you know sociopath. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I think that that's that's the trick that the movie does to the audience. Well, one thing I want to ask you guys about the violence in this because it seemed. Like, I think we can go ahead and talk about the dialogue and how certain parts of this have not aged particularly well. No. Um, No, sir. One of the things that I noticed uh, watching this is that it seemed like most of the violence that happens in the movie um, between characters... Uh, in, when we talk about that, I mean, like, um, the scene in which uh, Sean Penn's character, or uh, is it Michael? Chris, Chris Penn. Penn. Chris Penn. When Chris, Chris, Penn, yeah. when Chris Penn and uh, Mr. Blonde start wrestling in the office in a very aggressive fashion, and it feels like they don't say anything nice to each ah. other. They really, really are, like, digging into each other when they do that. And it felt to me as though it's a film about a bunch of men that can't um, show compassion and love for each other. So the only way they can get around that is through extreme violence or you know a lot of like really intense racism to try to create a bond or really intense homophobia or suggesting that someone might be gay because it would be in this context it feels like these characters just can't connect so a lot of it is just watching these people who desperately want to connect but the only time it's acceptable it the only time it was acceptable for one man to hold another man is when one man thought he was about to die 
And then it's like, okay, we can be close because you're probably going to die in my arms. That sort of thing. Flashes a peck and paw, wouldn't you say? Yeah. So, I mean, what did you guys think about that? What do you, how did the, how did that play for you guys? Because I know it's, of course, offensive now, but how did you guys feel about that? It, 92, you know, like, see, we're, 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 it's that, I mean, I I don't want to excuse it. That's not an excuse. Um, It is, it's also ignorance on Tarantino's part. It's not like he knows a lot of criminals. I mean, who the hell has a heist in the middle of the fucking day? Um, You know, like that. So I, 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 it's a lot of ignorance on his part and a lot of what he was borrowing from for these movies these sort of exploitation films mm-hmm. from the 70s and that kind of thing and taking a film on one two three um so like it's but in a con there's a lot of that but in, in the context of that he's using a lot of like uh american or african-american vernacular and things like that for sure pretty blatantly in that first scene yeah and he kept doing that bit all the way up until um jackie brown and i think that yeah his uh later films he has dropped that accent and of course yeah. no one's talking about canceling quentin tarantino for these films or anything like that but you know it was a valid argument i think spike lee sure. was super pissed about pulp yep. fiction because of the sheer amount of n-bombs that get dropped very casually by white actors in a film yep, um, yep. totally valid totally so, yeah yep. it's uh, yeah for sure i mean like uh I don't, yeah, it's difficult because uh, I think, yeah, those are totally valid criticisms. Would you, would you, I think this does is he have far, the same criticism for like Scorsese? Yeah, exactly. Like in this Goodfellas, is not, it's all over this the is not, this is by far, this is far away from the only film. Like that was mm-hmm. epidemic at the time, yeah, yeah, more yeah. or less. Yeah. Well, and it's a, and I'll, go, I'll give it the slight uh, benefit of additionally, and I think they still, it still wouldn't fly today. I mean, these are. Uh, also genuinely shitty people. Oh, yeah. Um, but, uh, like, they're monsters and murderers and, and killers. Well, this is this is more a question about, like, how do you appreciate these films now? Because, like, as a personal example, like, Pontypool is one of my favorite films. But uh-huh. there is a scene in the middle of Pontypool where someone has a brown face on, and they go, ah, la, 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 and they then call themselves Osama. And it is not... Hilarious. It's not funny. In the, there isn't enough in the film to know what the filmmakers thought of it uh, because there isn't like someone obviously going, these people are assholes. So we don't know what the film considers that. We don't know how it's supposed to be uh, portrayed to us. So uh, I think, Zach, you actually said like you can understand how the filmmaker feel, feels about what's being shown based off how the film itself reacts to what's happening. Yeah. So, with that in mind, uh, how do you guys feel about going back and uh, watching things like that? Are you able to kind of still enjoy it, or do you have to kind of like put blinders on for the stuff like that? I, I, uh, no. Well, I'll censor for me first. Um, if I couldn't sort of get over certain things like that, I mean, the fact of the matter is, I would probably have to stop watching anything that came out more than ten to fifteen years ago. Like there's there's so many things like for instance uh, or my let's take my girlfriend for an example, she has a lot of affection for the movie Breakfast at Tiffany's and it has a big problem. Mm-hmm. Mickey Rooney. Yeah, um, <laughs> and she wishes there was a cut uh, of it that that didn't have that, and I wish there was too. 
but it's there. I can probably I can't, make it for I can't, you. <laughs> and I can't, yeah, sure. But I can't, I can't just pretend I don't like other aspects of, of movies that have problematic elements just because something bad, whether, or something that was made by like, you know, when I was a kid uh, in middle school, I, Bobby the Vampire Slayer was huge for me. Turns out Joss Whedon's a shitty guy. But I can't pretend like I absolutely fucking hate the series and never go back to it. I know that for some people, that's how it works. But for me, it's like, I can't like I can't never watch a Kubrick or a Hitchcock or uh, anything made before 1985 ever again. Like there's so much stuff back in that time that I think is really valuable and that I really like. And I just I think you either separate it or you have to sequester yourself from an entire so, so, so probably the vast majority of art that has ever been created, to be honest. It's it's not that difficult to do. It's it's a lot like comparing, you know, military historians jerk themselves off about like Confederate victories during the Civil War. They could appreciate the military tacticians of it without saying, oh, what a, what a great cause it was or whatever. It's it, there's a, you know, like I think that it, it, it's one thing if the movie sucked. Right. Yeah. If the movie was boring and terrible, then yeah, I probably wouldn't. But the movie—it's a good movie. Like it's—it's—it's it's, it's short. It gets to the point. There's not a lot of bullshit, um, and the bullshit that is in there is in there for pretty specific reasons. Um, so much so that I think that like the 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 bonding, as you were talking about, Boris, I'm going to give you a point on that <laughs> because I think the male bonding in this movie, a lot like Peck and Paw, is more or less assumed. For example, like, do you guys feel that the relationship between Orange and White is all that earned? Uh, it seems very shallow to me. Like, it seems like yeah. it seems like that connection had more to do with the fact he was about to die and he thought that the guy was going to die. But they also show us enough time of them just hanging out and chilling Prior out to, yeah. that it suggests that the off-screen movie might have been a lot more of hanging out with these two. Well, yeah, I, I think that they imply enough that it functions. Like, they imply enough of a previous relationship that it functions in a way a play would that is taking place in one location and you have to assume a relationship between two characters um sure i mean like i said it's not a knock and tarantino does purposely leave things pretty ambiguous about backgrounds of people like there's a moment where uh orange is dick puts on his ring and it tells you a lot about the guy without really telling you anything mm -hmm. um you know for a movie that's so dialogue heavy there's the the, the visual cues in this movie um are crucial yeah. and I think that that's I, you know I can I, I'd make another point on the relationship aspect of it the connection aspect and that is um, obviously it's difficult to read fully Blonde is loyal it's tough to know how much he actually has regard for anybody besides himself it's possible that he genuinely likes these people on some level but the one person who like just has no interest whatsoever in creating connections is the one who escapes and survives like pink is the only one who truly is like i do not want to know anything about any of you i am in it for me i want this money i am doing what a professional needs to do and he's the only one who gets out possibly by virtue of not getting involved in these interpersonal relationships because yeah, it, that's what that last so standoff you, is you're you're in the you're in the pink survived camp uh he either he might have gotten arrested okay but i doubt i don't think he died i uh okay. I, I don't know either way but i always think this one's funny because steve buscemi like he's later turned into like the actor he is now where he's on boardwalk or he was on boardwalk empire and he's known for other things but at the time he kept getting typecast 
as the little like weaselly like usually the smaller criminal who was like ah i'm gonna go do some crazy stuff and he always would have things happen like he gets killed in fargo in a pretty uh dark but somewhat hilarious fashion um so it was funny because this film for me really introduced that as his early career arc uh that he eventually grew out of but it was very funny because yeah. You know, you, you just get a sense well, of the guy from this to movie. His cre- to, his, to his credit, he fucking nails it. He's great. I, yeah, I, I, I think can't he's really say, good in this movie. I think, I think, you know, there's some outliers, but the casting in this movie is pretty spot on, at least among the core. Yeah, and, all, um, and you have to understand, Chris, the alternative was, like, Quentin Tarantino wanted to be Mr. Pink. And then yeah, Steve Buscemi was like... Thank God. And eventually, Ooh. Mr. Pink had that whole, like, like a virgin speech. Quentin Tarantino gave it to the other character just because he wanted to perform it himself. But yeah, yeah. He, he, Steve Buscemi just did a, such a good audition that he gave it to him instead. Thankfully. The right yeah. yeah, thankfully. Well, there, there's yeah. a funny thing with that, too, because you're, you're saying you just mentioned the pop culture references. And mm-hmm. that came back to me because I forgot how many, like, it was it was a weird time period where they would have, like, criticism from Quentin Tarantino, like edgy, sort of edge lord-ish criticism. There's like a famous scene where he uh, appeared in another person's film and he famously suggests that um, Top Gun is a low-key gay film. Um, it was, I can send you the link. It's it's not okay. real woke. <laughs> um, no, okay. But, you know, he even got pulled into like, uh, or he got pulled on to like Crimson Tide as a co-writer by Weinstein <laughs> and the one scene that you can tell he wrote was something about the silver surfer that just starts appearing in the movie and it's like they're in the middle of a submarine so yeah this is uh this is this is something that i think is i mentioned him earlier but i do think that there's this weird twin embryonic phase between Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino um because they both do that shtick, right? And I think, uh, I think one, at least Quentin Tarantino's writing, at least about banal stuff, tends to be stronger. Like, he can make a tense scene when he needs to make a scene tense. And there's a reason people remember, I think, more of his scenes of people talking about fucking royales with cheese or what have you. Um, and also, he's just a better... He's better at making movies. I don't think Kevin Smith was ever actually very good at making movies. He just happened to hit some weird vein with clerks he's got um, a he's got a big personality and a lot of people like kevin smith himself and i think they give his movies big shorts yep Tar- yeah tarantino's the same way though tarantino's got a huge huge personality, personality yeah. i mean like he, he he the oxygen leaves the room when he enters because oh yeah but i mean i can tell he won't shut up in in terms of these uh, movies he, though he likes to talk well in terms of these movies though like you know quentin tarantino has been able to back up that personality with a real show uh, Kevin sure. Smith doesn't. For it's sure. sort of like the difference between Muhammad yeah. Ali and some guy who just talks a bunch of shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or if making a sports reference, you never hear it. Um, that's why. Yeah. So, and I, I, I've always found that that sort of like you know because Smith was based in Jersey and and Tarantino was in Hollywood. You know, they they were kind of the the coastal. Uh, Miramax kids, you know, of the next great generation. You get a little bit of that with like Fincher and Rodriguez a little mm-hmm. bit, but not not nearly to the extent that you've got at least at the time for Kevin Smith. It wasn't so much about Tarantino 
made good movies. Yeah. yeah. Like he was out to make good movies. I can think of one instance where maybe two instances where Kevin Smith tried to do that, three instances, and only like one and a half a half of one turned out okay. <laughs> um, you know, like it 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 Tarantino was on a different trajectory than I think Kevin Smith was. Yeah. Uh, but yet they were both kind of compared because they were both small budget films discovered in the 90s. It was sort of that kind of new era of you know, studios were hunting for, you know, something different, something edgy, because we can't afford yeah. to just keep making Superman and Star Wars all the time. I mean, I think uh, yeah, I, there was a different director who I think is probably a more direct corollary. Um, uh, Christopher Nolan uh, at the time, because he started a lot of the crime stuff and a lot of the nonlinear uh, storytelling. And a lot of his stuff was and similarly. Following come out. Following came out like ninety six, late nineties. I think it? it came out ninety six, okay. and then Memento I think okay. it was ninety eight. So it's not exactly the same time. Memento was ninety eight. Yeah, no, I'm no, no. Old. Memento was two thousand. Yeah, I oh. thought Memento was at least the millennium. Okay. Yeah. But for me, those guys have always been closer ties because of the fact that it's the uh, the way in which they were telling stories and some of the way in which it was indie. However, of course, Christopher Nolan went off on his thing. I mean, we're talking about two different directors with very different things, but I just have always thought it's funny that people always associate Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino rather than uh, Christopher Nolan, because I think that the tie to, like, crime is a little bit tighter with those guys. Well, uh, but Nolan, you know, say what Tarantino's used to fucking with the timeline versus Nolan's messing with the timeline. Nolan, Nolan, it's almost a shtick. Yeah. You know, it's it's almost a gimmick. Mm -hmm. With with Tarantino, I I don't really feel that that's true, uh, especially because he's sort of gone away from it in his later films. You know, he sort of he kind of does it every now and then in these little vignettes, but that, but not to the extent that that Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs was. I mean, Jackie Brown was almost completely linear. Um, I mean, there was some split screen stuff, but for the most part, it was pretty linear. Um, so I, I, I sort of don't agree with that. And also yeah, I, part of the reason that Smith and Tarantino get compared a lot is because they were roughly kind of discovered and, in the same way around the same I think time. They both have this very Gen X smart ass kid who doesn't shut up energy and Nolan does not nolan's a very like cold filmmaker like quiet mm -hmm. yeah he would never like the kind of conversations that these characters have and that's the main point of point of comparison i'm making right now like in clerks when they talk about like the death star and blah 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 the bathrooms on the death star or in this where they like are making comparisons to like comic book characters and shit like those right. are of a kind but you'd yeah. never find conversations like that in a nolan film never ever 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 yeah, and, and it's it's also think of the time period too, early night. I mean, The Simpsons was just getting started, you know, like so, and, and it was a huge cultural thing. And that had a lot of like, sort of like Gen X-y sort of commentary on pop culture. And that's why I think that Tarantino was better at having that cultural resonance far more than Smith was, just because A, Tarantino's uh, evolution, he's able to change and uh, also, it's as Zach said, it's just better written. You know, like it's it's not so much that you agree with his take on Superman or whatever. It's that it's an interesting take and it's worth hearing. Now, is it motivated by a particular character, such as a head assassin who's the leader of the most deadliest thing in the world? I doubt it. But you know, it's it's it is both of them are similar because they want to get their opinion in their movie and they don't care how they do it. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you both a point. That's that is a valid. Hey. Uh, Valid counterpoint to my somewhat generalization. Well, and, and that's why I, I think part of the reason that I think this film works isn't necessarily because of 
Tarantino, I give full credit to Harvey Keitel. I, I think Harvey Keitel is one of those actors. I think he's not only is he responsible for getting this movie made with money, but I think he's one of those actors. We talked about this in the film concussion days, Boris, when we did Bad Lieutenant. I was going to bring um, that up because of yeah, the uh, amount of screams. Yeah. It's just the sheer yeah, guttural right. screams no, like, from yeah, Keitel yeah, in both right. of these films. Yeah, right. <laughs> but he is one of those actors that elevates everybody else's performances. I don't know how he does it, but uh, I think De Niro's best work was when he was opposite Keitel. And I think that's true to this day, uh, especially in The Irishman. I think that Keitel has that ability to sort of, Paul Newman, they say the same thing about Paul Newman too, where he elevates other people's performances because he always brings his A game. And yes, his A game is grunting and and that kind of stuff, swearing, screaming, that yeah. kind of stuff. But he's, he's very committed at it and it's almost scary. Well, it, uh, Jodie Foster yeah. talks about uh, her very creepy and inappropriate scene during Taxi Driver. And she talks about how Keitel was very professional and open and secure with her about it. And, you know, made, that made her feel safe to sort of like push it a little bit further and be okay to like kind of embrace what this moment's trying to do. And for a 13 year old, that's that's pretty impressive to mm -hmm. recognize, but that's just how how uh, magnetic Keitel can be. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's you know, he's kind of doing the. To bring their game. It, I think I heard like Michael Caine or somebody talk about it that like the big goal with most actors is to show the audience where to pay attention, and it seems like Keitel's really good at that because he yeah. he engages the other actors with pretty intense concentration and focus. So if you see someone who appears to be as serious as Keitel giving someone a solid shake and paying attention as though they really matter it tends to change your perspective of them as an audience member. Because you're like, oh, Harvey Keitel's looking at this guy like he really means business. Maybe he really does mean business. So suddenly I'm more afraid of Michael Madsen yeah. than I would have been otherwise. For sure. Uh, right. I think that, uh, yeah, I agree. I think he's really solid. Like, And he is in many ways for the majority of the... F I mean, they pass the baton back and forth a little bit, but especially for the first half of the film, he is like, the emotional core. He's the one that like cares about Orange's well-being and is far more uh disgusted by Blonde than uh than um than Pink is when Orange is mostly passed out. I think that he and Buscemi are my favorite performances in this. Um Roth is almost up there, but he does that that English that American accent is not a Can't do it. That, yeah. When he says the Lost Boys, my man, that is a British ass yeah. accent. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it also think, doesn't it sound a little bit like he's doing a slight impression of Quentin Tarantino? A little bit, yeah. And and uh, I mean, I mean, I do I do appreciate like uh, Michael Madsen, who his career just didn't go on to be all that uh, all that impressive, but he's pretty good in this. I mean, he's solid um, in Species. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think Laura, the fun thing, Laura Tierney apparently was fucking hell to deal with on the set, but uh, that is apparently a common thread with working with Laura Tierney. Yeah, like I, apparently, like it was the same thing, even like in a brief cameo with The Simpsons. Uh, he was forgot his lines. He was confused most of the time. Yeah. Didn't understand what he was doing. Yeah, well, know, that could be like challenging. I've heard that story about that could Tierney. be challenging with actors, but yeah. also if you hire a tiger, you got to expect a tiger when he shows up. You know. Yeah, yeah, right. Like we talked about with uh, Island and Dr. Monroe, you know, you're the one who hired Brando and Val Kilmer. Yeah. You know, you have no one but yourself yeah. to blame. Um, yeah. But, but like, and but, I think that, that Tierney, I mean, Falk even said this because he had a guest spot on Columbo. 
and he said that like Tyranny was a nightmare. You know, he just like never learned his lines. He was always confused. Yeah, like that, that's that, I, that apparently he's legendary for that. I, I do want to ask because we didn't cover it a couple things. Um, uh, I, I mentioned like my history with this movie, and we've both seen it before. Like I said, this is the first time I've seen it in twelve to fifteen years, and I don't like it as much as I did when I was a teenager. But it definitely there's a bit that I do think holds up and I see why Quentin Tarantino got his start like this is a really solid little indie premiere um I'd like to you know you your guys is like if you guys have a long ago history with this how long it's been oh yeah and also I, I almost um I kind of want to know where everybody thinks of this because I don't know if we'll do another how long it'll be until we talk about this again but where does this stand in your like opinion of Tarantino's oeuvre like uh yeah, like how, oh, like what, what's our this? favorite Quentin Tarantino? Right, yeah, or, or if you think this is one of his better ones, or if you think with the hindsight of time, this one's fallen towards the rear of the pack, or hell, maybe you just don't like any of them nowadays. Well, I, I'll say because you asked this earlier, and I didn't get a quite a chance to answer it about like our sort of history with the movie, and and my history is actually very similar to yours, Zach. I, I actually discovered I was a little bit older because um, I could drive and I could was able to know people to buy me cigarettes. Mm. Um, but my buddies and I, we would have movie nights. Like we would just go to the Blockbuster and rent a bunch of movies and spend the night watching a bunch of movies. Now, uh, that particular night, if I remember correctly, I wasn't saying at our house, I was staying at a buddy's house. And the first movie we got that none of us had seen was Apocalypse Now. Oh, yeah. And I was the only one who stayed up through the whole thing. Uh, because if you haven't seen that movie, it's a chore. It's a chore. You have to, it's a job. Um, the fact there's a five so, hour, four hour version is pretty brutal. I've never it, seen the Well, this, this is, this is before the redo. Yeah. This is before the redo, the redo was redo even is, a thing. is miserable. I, I, I will admit that I am a big fan of the original version. Oh, I, I, I love the movie now as I'm older, but when I watched it when I was a kid, Sure. I, I, I liked it, but I'm like, it's not that great. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's, you know, I, I, unlike Deer Hunter, where I watched it as a kid, didn't like it, watched it as a grown up, didn't like it. Um, yeah, Podclips Now is much better. But so everybody was asleep and we had rented Reservoir Dogs. So I put it on and it was like two in the morning or something. And I watched it completely by myself, expecting to, to eventually fall asleep. And I stayed up and watched the whole fucking thing. Um, so we wake, get up early the next morning, we go to breakfast and I'm so fucking tired, but I'm so jazzed about this movie because I just had a ball watching this movie. I, I love, because like I said, you sort of pour yourself into these characters a little bit and sort of find them uh, relatable and that's the trap. And so I, I immediately, after we the read breakfast, trap. you guys got to watch that. Yeah, <laughs> yes, Point. did it. Point to um, for making a pun. All right. Wow, Borif. Oh yeah. Going with the points. I mean, they're there. I, I, I've got to spend them. Got to spend those points. Right. Well, you definitely shot your lot, homie. <laughs> um, so the uh, so I made I make them watch it like that day. I'm like, no, we're going over to my house. You guys got to watch this movie because at that point, I had already seen Pulp Fiction. Mm. Um, I had already kind of, but I didn't realize that like, you know, this the idea that there was like the shared Tarantino verse that Reservoir Dogs was sort of the first one. I, I really liked it. So yeah, Zach, I was in speech and debate. We dressed like the fucking Reservoir Dogs, though sometimes we'd put on fedoras and be the Blues Brothers if Richard was in charge. Um, but uh, as I've gotten older, um, I've sort of realized what Tarantino, and especially after going to film school, I sort of realized what Tarantino's shtick is. And that's his movies are really about movies. His movies are a tribute two movies if you look at 
hip hop, right? Where they take a sample and they turn that sample and they just isolate one moment from another song and that becomes in and above itself a whole song. Tarantino, I think, does the same thing with movies. I think we talked about this in the film Concussion Days too with um, uh, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing uh -huh. where he's sort of cribbing and using previously made movies like a hip hop song and sort of spinning off from them. Um, and he still does it to this day. And it's especially, I mean, it's, it's, it's his stick. Equally fascinating, both with Spike Lee in particular, Do the Right Thing and Tarantino, because now you see people sampling the sample in their movies. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah. I the, mean, like, like I said, the summer is such a thing now. And I think like 95% of the time, it's an explicit do the right thing reference. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, yeah. And, and, and people like Spike Lee and Tarantino uh, can do it well. I would argue Tarantino does a little bit better than Spike Lee. But, yeah. um, and I think that, but both of them have shown uh, growth in their philosophy. So uh, it, with that in mind, with the growth in mind, I still pretty, I pretty, I rank Reservoir Dogs pretty high uh, because of the financial constraints. It was his first time out and what a statement, yeah. you know, like it's hard for not just to be a statement of a director, but to have the cultural resonance just based off of your style. Like, I mean, like we talked about this off air, but like, I mean, they, they referenced Pulp Fiction and Space Jam, the first Michael Jordan movie. That was a kid's movie. You know, like that's how to be fair pervasive he was. To be fair, in the preview for the new Space Jam, you can see the droogs from Clockwork Orange in the background of one shot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can't, um, that's gonna well, it, right. You know, to answer the question for me, like my introduction to this was essentially my aunts saying that it was an awful film. Uh, so, <laughs> so it's got to be good. Yeah, so this was like, uh, it came out in 92. So I, I, I probably was 12. So later, I just remember my aunts talking about it saying, oh my God, we this guy at the video rental store said this is the best movie ever. This is going to be so good. And then they watched it and they hated it. So for a long time, I was like, oh, maybe it's that's crazy that it's a film they don't like. Um, because they also had introduced me to train spotting and they loved train spotting. So I was very surprised ah, weird. that, yeah. Weird. Strange. It was a weird flip. Okay. Like for some reason, train spotting was super acceptable, cool, edgy, and this was not the same. I think it was because the violence was very different. And also, I should put out yeah, that they prefer their violence against babies. Well, the other thing is that train spotting is also not intensely homophobic. That was the other issue. No. Um, so that said, I eventually there's that scene with Robert Carlyle. There's that scene with Robert Carlyle dressed gets with a crossdresser. Oh yeah. Well, I mean it but it wasn't the same sort of stuff. Like there's some pretty blatant in this film there's a lot of stuff that's very Certainly definitely not comparable to Reservoir yeah. Dogs. I agree with you there. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not where Reservoir Dogs, let's be honest, it's mean spirited. Yeah, yeah. You that's know, the like idea. and it's 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 you know, like I, I, I get, I jive, I'm jiving with you. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was actually kind of my take on it too, because in Indiana, it was pretty common to see like casual like uh, racism and casual homophobia and things like that. So seeing it in the movie, I was like, well, this is what I'm seeing. You know, when I go out and deal with people in high school and things like that, not quite to the same like visceral level. But um, uh, for me, I was more irritated when I watched it back in the day because you never see the actual like heist which as an adult with like years of experience understanding like underplaying a scene ah. like that makes a lot of sense but when i was like 15 or 16 and i watched this because i borrowed it from the library 
I was really let down. I was like, when are they going to get to the fireworks factory? It's like, <laughs> when, when are we going to see who the kid is? Because at one point, uh, I think Orange says something about the lady had a kid and they never show the kid. They say there was a mm, yeah. girl who was like 20, 21. Yeah, like she was a kid and like you never see the she, actual. He's referring, he's referring to the woman who shot her, who shot him. Well, yeah, I can. mean, I can understand that. I was guess when I was a child, I was hearing like something about it's a kid and like I had an issue where I was like, well, did that happen during the bank robbery? And we never see the bank robbery. So a lot of the things they talk about with Mr. Blonde going wild is something that I totally get why they didn't show it for budgetary reasons, for art reasons, for all that. But having been a, a young kid watching this, I was totally <laughs> like, why the fuck did you tell me about that cool ass shit going on and then not show it to me? I don't have uh, patience for this. I want to see cool shit happening. And to me at the time, the idea of a giant shootout in a bank was cool shit. I eventually got that with Killing Zoe. Though that film does not have the same resonance and it's not as fun. Uh, it's also completely based off uh, Eric Stoltz's performance, which he's great. But one Eric Stoltz does not make up for an entire ensemble cast that was in this. So that's the main difference. Yeah. Yeah. I really love the cast in this, too. That was one of the things uh, I remember. It's an amazing cast. Solid cast. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, like, even, like, and, and I was thinking about it. There's not too many of them around anymore. I mean, uh, Bunker's dead. Chris Penn's dead. Mm. Um, you know, like, uh, Harvey Keitel's around, you know. Uh, Harvey Keitel, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, but I, I think Bob that uh, Tyranny, who would be like what over a hundred now. Yeah, Tyranny's dead. Yeah, he's very dead. Um, and that's why I, I. But where, where would you rank this oh. in the filmography, Boris? I mean, if yeah, you had yeah. to, I mean, I, I know you've seen his other films, so I mean, like where, if you had I, to, you know, I think that it's a solid first shot. Um, I would probably put it like three or four if I had to list the whole thing, because like I, I have my personal fairly unpopular favorite which is jackie brown because i that, i'm I i'm applaud you for that. really into i'm gonna uh, tell you jackie brown's the only one of his movies i haven't seen oh, oh well, well i mean you should watch i've never seen the grindhouse movie yeah well the thing is is it's like the two lead actors in jackie brown are probably my favorite pairing he's ever done uh because robert forrester and pam greer Rest in Holy peace. shit. Yeah. They are so cool in that movie and they are so on it yeah. and so perfect and they're cast so well that I can't really not think of that as my top. Pulp Fiction, of course, is probably number two because it was the boldest, most intense. Um, and if we're really talking about it, probably like somewhere closer to seven or eight, just as a writer, I would throw True, true Romance in, but just as a writer because he wrote it and he's of course not the director but there was enough in there that it feels to me almost like that's a quentin tarantino movie even though he didn't direct it for sure i i got you because you could throw in natural born killers if oh you yeah, want. yeah 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 uh, but um i i and that's why i because here's if i don't want to make it just seem like I, i'm pumping tarantino's tires all the time because i do think the problem that i do have with tarantino in his later years is he does seem to buy his own bullshit yeah. he does seem to believe the hype much I, more for example like he just came out with the novelization of uh once upon a time in hollywood and like it sort of answers all the questions and i i was sort of like i think I don't like that. Part of why I like your movies is that I don't get all the answers. And I, I'm, I, I I'm okay heard, with that. I can't remember where I heard this. It could be bullshit. That there is somewhere in existence a five-hour cut of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, which I is, buy it. Yeah, I, can, I, can, I can ask a friend who helped do dailies, and we'll see if that is true. <laughs> um, yeah, I buy it, though. Mm -hmm. I do. I, I, that's why... Uh, so... 
it, I, when you explain things, that's when it kind of. I'd rather he. Yeah. I really, I really wish he took the David Lynch approach, where it was just like, I don't care if you don't get it. Fuck you. You know, like I. I yeah, I, I, yeah. It's diminishing returns because it's like. I think that. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I uh, to, to to sort of answer where I would place it, probably top definitely top third like top three or four of his movies is probably where i think this is really actually surprisingly well served by its limitations a thing he has dealt with less and less as his career goes on um i think the limitations and the tightness and the and the sort of claustrophobic stuck in this warehouse aspect of it really 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 in some ways benefits the movie and lets instead of him being strictly a show-off for his like techniques and effects and uh and what great taste in movies he's got yeah like instead of being like a big you know uh fireworks display or whatever it lets it show just the acting and the dialogue and the tension building in a much more small scale small stakes tight atmosphere and i think that benefits this movie a lot and he's never even in pulp fiction i don't think ever quite replicated that now my number one i think and obviously now he's diff like his past i don't know however many years with the exception of hateful eight is like this weird twist where like he doesn't do movies about a bunch of bad people anymore he does movies where he's punishing like shitty like he has a few characters and then it's kind of about punishing shitty figures from history or movements he hates like with the nazis and slave owners which hey everybody hates those people and the manson family is kind of a stand-in for modern Hollywood sensibilities in a way. Yeah, he doesn't have um, antiheroes as much as he used to. Um, yeah, exactly. Or at least the, the villains are far scarier than the antiheroes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're next level. Um, I do think that, uh, yeah. I mean, having said that, I think that uh, Inglorious Bastards is my favorite of his. There's just five or six scenes in that movie that I think are too, like, kind of masterful to, like, ignore and. Christoph Waltz is one of my favorite performances the last, like, of the 21st century in that movie. He's so spectacular. I think it's the best performance Quentin Tarantino's ever gotten out of anybody. Um, but, you know, that's a debate that uh, could be had. But I, 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 I tend to agree with you. That's one of my favorites. I, 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 I love the the fantasy aspect of it. That's I, I kind of enjoyed that. That is just sort yeah. Of I it. think it does a and really good job balancing comedy and drama. Yeah, and and once upon a time in Hollywood, you know, if that is going to be his last film, I he said he's going to do one more is. at least. Okay, he's going to round it out. Um, so I think that that movie was great because it was hyped and marketed in such a way before anybody saw that, that uh, Tarantino is doing a Manson film. And that film really makes you lean into that punch. And it really is not that movie. Yeah, it is not, it's really it, not. I mean, it, it is not. And, and I, I, it's, it's good. You know, I, I, it, when I first watched it, I didn't like it. And then I caught it on again on like on TV or something. And, I, and then I was like, okay, I kind of get where the, he's going. I'll give this this, I have to give this to Once Upon a Time in uh, Hollywood. My girlfriend, she saw Pulp Fiction years ago. Not a fan. Uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino, definitely not for everybody. Um, nope. The sole movie he's made that I think she would like 90% of is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Because 90% of it is just this character study about these two guys bumming around fucking 1969 Los Angeles. Like, it's not hyper-violent. It's just a period piece character study. 
And I think it's the one thing that she'd like dig most of the runtime. I, I, she might like Jackie Brown. Yeah, yeah. Jackie Brown is Jackie. She might like Jackie Brown. I yeah. mean, she's such a great character. Pam Greer does awesome. Uh, it's I, I, it's I'd, also I'd throw that before I throw in Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood. Truth be told, because they they make an allusion to the whole Natalie Wood thing, and it's just kind of gross and stupid. Oh yeah, that's um, true. I'd you know. I'd kind of suggest that like one of the things Jackie Brown's a good one to go back to, but it's also interesting looking at his career because as he's gotten like more well-known and more comfortable, his run times have gotten a significantly longer chunk. <laughs> Another benefit of this movie and it's low budget. Yeah. It's a Bingo. quick one. It's, it's, it's real easy. Yeah. yeah. And that's, again, you know, for, for a movie that's so filled with sort of, shall we say fluff, with the dialogue, nobody's actually talking about what's going on. And, and I you do know, they're think... talking about other stuff. And, and... But for that, it still feels pretty thrilling, and you're still kind of with well, each scene, the way it's going. Right. Yeah, each scene has but... something happen is the important thing. Like, it's not empty dialogue and... sequences. The dialogue always leads to an occurrence. And I do think that there is a little bit of that showing off, but not so much that it's insane. I think you're right, Russell. The, the best, in many ways, the, the most cleverly constructed and best scene in this thing in a way is him learning the story that goes from him getting the script to him, like Rockyly reciting it for the first time to him, getting a little better to him telling it in front of the criminals to him being inside of the story itself. And it's a really like all in the course of telling the story a single time. I think it's a really like, it does show like a lot of creativity on his part, even with the criminals interjecting with like trying to poke holes in it. Which in of itself is a great way to build tension. Just have like, well, if you can't answer this, like maybe they'll see through you. Yeah, I think that's like that's a it's a bit of a show off scene, but it's not excessively so. Correct. No. And 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 one of the things that he does, Tarantino, and still does to this day, uh, he is a master of licensed soundtracks. Yeah. Like I, that not since Kubrick with Full Metal Jacket or even Scorsese with Goodfellas have I seen a movie that songs are now almost permanently associated with this movie. I think that, interestingly, um, the only one they paid for, they spent all their money getting stuck in the middle with you, and the rest they cut a record deal for, like, the movie to get. Especially Harry Nielsen, because yeah. Harry Nielsen and that, owns his own That Uga song is not cheap anymore, man. That's, uh, no, yeah, yeah. Those thank you, days, Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. And he's good at, like, like the way he cribs from movies. He doesn't just crib from the movies you've heard of. You know, like uh, taking Pelham one, two, three is a great example. That's a great gem for anybody who hasn't seen that movie. Sure. If you haven't seen that yeah, it's movie, it's that, one movie of is the, that movie rocks really, as far as really like great a 70s. heist crime movie. It rules. Um, and all the, yeah, all of the using colors as the names of the criminals. Sure. Movie. Yeah. So yeah. like with the soundtrack, he sort of unearths these sort of like, you know, like Little Green Bag, I don't think would have been anything if it weren't for this movie. That movie is so associated with the opening credits of this film. Yeah. And Stuck um, in the Middle with You is yeah. like, you can't not associate it with this movie at this point. Sure, yeah. And and yeah, I, obviously James Gunn went the same route. And and to a lesser extent, uh, Scorsese, though I think Scorsese does it with very specific and different reasons. Tarantino sort of does the same thing with the soundtrack that he did with the dialogue in that it's kind of benign and cheery and empty calories a lot of these songs so to put that contrasting that with this very dark gritty violent uh visuals is interesting and neat. Well, it's, it's like uh, a, it's like an arthur penn homage almost because i think they did that sure. in uh bonnie and clyde where it's all plucky happy yep. music but there's people dying uh, and getting their heads blown off 
Lesser extent Butch Cassidy, but I, yeah. I, I'd, like, I'd like to dig the cut of your gym. Rain, um, raindrops okay, well, keep falling on my head. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Um, another movie with great dialogue. All right. Well, uh, I think we've, have we bored out uh, all that we can do with uh, with this I, diamond? I believe, yeah. I believe you've to... hit at least a runtime shorter than some of later ones that Quentin Tarantino has <laughs> done. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like between the, um, my explanation explanation of my history and where I rank this, uh, I think I think my final thoughts are already kind of clear. Okay, yeah. uh, it's an upper tier it's an upper tier Tarantino movie. I think it's really charming. It's a great indie movie, which is something he would never <laughs> really do again. Um, you know, uh, I think there's still charm to it, and in some ways, I like it more than Pulp Fiction for being not in spite of its limitations, but because of them. Um, yeah, I think it makes it a unique one, and I think it really. Like it highlight, like it it works as a stage play. It truly would. And any movie that can work on stage, like, but has never been a stage play, that just means some something's right with the script. And the fact that there is a little bit of directorial flair from a burgeoning director doesn't hurt as well. I think it's, I still think it's pretty solid in spite of the fact that I don't like it as much as I used to. And I recognize the kind of flaws that Chris pointed out much more acutely than I did, you know, yeah, fifteen to twenty years ago. Sure. I think I'm exactly on the same page because it's like I have a similar feeling about it. I think it's great for first showing, but it has an enormous, enormous asterisk because of that. Uh, yeah. So it's one of those films that I like it now, but I wouldn't feel terribly comfortable watching this in a mixed group. I would mm -hmm. not be completely sure. comfortable uh, watching this with anybody, really, because it's something that seems like you have to almost kind of shame your way through certain sections to be able to enjoy it properly. And that's why in high school you feel no shame. So, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I guess my final thoughts are are pretty similar to y'all's. Like it's, um, I, I love this movie when I was younger. Not as much now, but I yeah. the 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 staying power is still there. Sure, it's mm -hmm. for you know it gets a lot of uh, praise for the low budget, and I think part of that reason is that it doesn't show, uh, and I think that that's crucial. Uh, that like when you have budgetary, you do with what what you can, and who knows? The budgetary constraints may have, uh, like Zach said, made it a better movie than. And it uh, might have helped you... that they originally had a much smaller budget in mind, yeah. so they already had planned for yeah. an extremely low budget, and they only got to pump up what they already planned. Yeah, and and so considering that this was so early in the '90s, and it sort of was the beginning of this edge lord, you know, humor sure. with that is so prevalent in all of 90s culture music and, uh, mm -hmm. and movies um especially from sort of you know that this we kind of reinvented the auteur in the early 90s you know it, it we sort of had a new uh definition for it um I, I would argue it started with the coen brothers but you can make a very good argument that it started with the reservoir dogs movie i mean you can make a very good sure. argument so because of that uh and the i would say pretty out of the park casting um, you know, everybody's firing at all cylinders. Uh, it's, 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 they make the movie work. If it weren't for the cast, if he had casted himself as Mr. Pink, uh, this movie would have not worked as well. I, I don't think. Um, so. Oh, no way. I, yeah, I mean, we've I, seen I, him act. Yeah, come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Tim, Tim Roth, Tim Roth famously tells a story when he was first getting signed on to this movie. Um, 
Tarantino was giving him a hard time about his American accent. And he says, I could do a better British accent than you can do an American accent. And Tarantino then did the British accent and Tim Roth was not impressed. He compared it to Dick Van Dyke. Um, and then we all saw Django Unchained and saw him try to play an Australian. And uh, I think we know who won that debate. Yeah. Um, so, okay, well, that does it for a reservoir dogs. Um, let me run down the points because some were given. Uh, quite a bit, actually. All right, Chris Bohr, if you have no more bonus points to give out, my friend, you are all zero. Uh, so you have 11 points for final voting because I gave you a point about the male bonding. Uh, I have one more point to give out, and you got a point from Chris about the whole Kevin Smith kerfuffle. And Zach still has three points to give out with 12 points of final voting. As usual, Zach, the points getter, uh, got two <laughs> points Somebody has from to Chris. hold on for the last two episodes. <laughs> uh, um, Chris, he got both of them from Chris. Uh, one for the Kevin Smith thing, and then I can't remember what the other one point was about. But he, I made he, a movie trap pun. Yeah, that's yeah, where yeah. you go. Yeah, the movie trap pun. I should have remembered that. Um, okay, so that's where we sit. Uh, 11, 11, and 12. So, Chris Boreth, let us flashback to a young burgeoning full of oh my God. piss and vinegar. What is this going to be? What, what is this going to be? Earth was my money's on that Czechoslovakian Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do a lot of uh, Jan Spankenmeyer films. Um, well, no, it's funny because I, I went back and I was really like seriously considering it because like The Abyss was a super popular movie with me. I love The Abyss. Uh, I was not as into the far out stuff. Like I was starting to see some indie films, but I hadn't gotten really into the cult stuff yet. So discovering new films generally was whatever they would have at like um, uh, the library that I could find and get because we had such a small access. And some of it, like you could look stuff up because the internet didn't exist. So you would find these films and suddenly be shocked. And I'd be like, why doesn't anybody know about this? And one of the first times that happened to me is the film that I actually picked out for this. Because uh, if I went back to high school, literally it would be like Independence Day or something like that. But a film right from around that time period that I discovered that really had more of an impact on me than other films I saw. Including... A deep impact? It's deep no, impact. No, no. <laughs> it's also not Brazil, because the other one was plainly Brazil. But um, I decided Sorcerer. This oh, is a, no. This is a William Friedkin film. No. It is right. awesome. Have you guys ever heard of Sorcerer before? I've seen it before. Uh, no, I don't. I have not seen it. Maybe I haven't I've heard of it. I haven't, I haven't seen, seen it. it since I watched it back then. So this is going to be okay. the first re-time seeing it. However, I do remember that the episode of The Mandalorian that most people like a lot cribs from this heavily. Uh, the one that has uh, Bill Burr and they, it, like, drive with the explosives. I have not and, seen The Mandalorian. No. Well, so. uh, then that's not helpful for you. But this one's fun. <laughs> um, uh, at least I think it was fun. And uh, I remember that when I was young, I thought it was the best thing ever. And uh, it's better that we did this than Solaris, guys. So, hey. God help you. Thank you. See, Thank see, you, sometimes, Thank you. sometimes Thank there's you, a sir. reprieve in the movie track. I know. Thank you. Thank you. You're, 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 <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Tough, but fair. Tough, but fair. <laughs> uh, but yeah, right. awesome. Sorcerer. Okay. Well, yeah, it's, it has been uh, a dog's age since I've seen it. Um, so, uh, and I saw it, unlike you, I saw it as a grown up. <clears throat> and um, yeah, so there's that. And uh, yeah, so I guess that uh, that pulls it down. The, the bell is rung, class is over, high school is out. It is time to go home and 
and put on your favorite sorcerer movie. Um, so with that, I have been Russell Carlson. Thank you very much for listening. And I have been joined by Chris Boroff. Thank you very much for listening. And also Zach Powers. Steelers wheel had this pop bubblegum hit. <laughs> the the behemoth. <laughs> that's, that's Stephen Wright's great. Oh. Uh, all righty. So uh, with that in mind, I will say, as we always say, Diane Ladd is too young to be Chevy Chase's mom. That's the movie Trap Promise. It sure is. See you guys. I, I, oh, I was scared the shit out of me, Larry. I'm going to die alone. Oh, excuse me. I didn't realize you had a degree in medicine. Uh, uh, are you a doctor? Are you a doctor? Answer me, please. Are you a doctor? Huh? Okay. So you admit you don't know what you're talking about. So, if you're through giving me your amateur opinion, lie back and listen to the news. I'm taking you back to the rendezvous. Joe's gonna get you a doctor. The doctor's gonna fix you up. And you're gonna be okay. Now say it. You're gonna be okay. You're gonna be okay. Say the goddamn words, you're gonna be okay! Oh, God! Say the goddamn fucking words! Say it! Oh, okay, Larry. Correct! Correct! <laughs>